Welcome to this Reformation and Revival video. We're glad that you're here. I'm here with my friend, Scott Yanor. Did I pronounce your last name right, Scott? Yeah, I mean, it's like Jenner, uh, Yenner. Jenner, Yenner. Yeah. Scott Yenner. Um, and you're down in Boise at the moment. I'm here in Moscow, Idaho. And you wrote a piece for the public discourse called Polygamy or Something Like It Rises. So did I get the title right? Is that what it was? Correct. Yeah. And it, um, you've been here in, in, in Moscow before for various symposiums. And then we've done some work down in Twin Falls, Idaho, together with the Idaho Family Policy Center. And when I read your piece, I thought, man, I want to talk about it, um, particularly because you mentioned 25 percent. Uh, you, you cited a Gallup poll that said 25 percent of America now approves of polygamy, which is crazy. Um, not surprising, but still crazy. So uh, we're going to get into all of that. But before we do, um, why don't you, you, we mentioned before, I'm just going to hand it over to you because you're a man of so many long, glorious titles. Will you just tell us, tell us, tell us all of your credentials, Scott? Well, I'm a PhD from Loyola University, and uh, I work down here at Boise State University as a professor of political science. And I'm also a, a Washington fellow at the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. And in that job, um, I recently have been appointed as the senior director of state coalitions and uh, stationed in Tallahassee. So I'm splitting my time between uh, the Boise area and Tallahassee. Um, you know, for the next while. Um, we're learning a little bit about what uh, the Florida government has been doing. Uh, we're really trying to support them in their work. Uh, we think of the fine work that they're doing in attacking wokeness in Florida, reforming the schools, and doing other things to fight um, the oligarchy that seems to be kind of overtaking America. And so we're, we're really trying to document and support what it is that they're doing uh, down there in Florida in the government and also, you know, support in whatever ways we can the uh, ambitions of the governor, the, the further ambitions of the governor. And so, uh, you know, that's what, what I'm spending a lot, of, a lot of my time on these days. Well, that's glorious. I'm glad that you get to see the great state of Florida. Uh, I was born and raised there my whole life before moving here to Idaho a year and a half ago. So uh, Mossy Oaks, glorious lakes, you know, just oh, palm meadows and rattlesnakes. It's a wonderful place to be. And if you do talk to Governor Ron DeSantis, you have to tell him that you know a guy who knows Sheriff Grady Judd, who is a sheriff in Polk County, Florida, Central Florida. Ron DeSantis loves Grady Judd because Grady is not <laughs> Grady had nothing to do with the COVID nonsense that happened down there. Grady had nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter riots. He's from a place where we just don't, we don't abide that kind of activity. And uh, DeSantis would, would show up multiple times on appearances with Grady Judd. And DeSantis is in the background while Grady Judd's on the microphone, the sheriff, and DeSantis just cannot control his laughter. While Grady Judd is saying, we heard you're gonna come to Polk County and enter into houses and riot. He says, we encourage our citizens to own guns. They like guns. And if you come into their house tonight, they're going to blow you away. <laughs> well, it's a good way to keep the, the county safe. He and, does. Uh, God bless him. Yeah. Yes. God bless him. Uh, he actually showed up on. Uh, who's the big guy? The I think he's a Mormon. The Blaze Network guy. Glenn, Glenn Beck. He, yes. Uh, Grady Judd showed up on Glenn Beck one time because it was that entertaining of a sheriff. But um, 
all of that's an aside. You're taking me back to Florida. Let's talk about your um, let's talk about your public discourse article. Okay. You cited the Gallup poll, 25% of Americans now approve of polygamy. Now, when a burger fell dropped down, I remember when whenever that happened, I was sitting around a fire somewhere with a bunch of friends, and you know, all the men were saying, you know, polygamy's next, polygamy's next. So we saw this coming. Conservatives saw this coming. Um, a lot of people didn't see it coming, but even so. That Gallup poll says it's actually here if you have 25% of the American population. Um, why should we not be surprised? Well, I don't think we should be surprised. Um, I mean, I think the biggest surprise is that polygamy didn't come first, um, that same-sex marriage came first and then polygamy, and it's a, a kind of revealing surprise. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting about polygamy is that, you know, civilizations have been founded on polygamy and mm -hmm. they have endured. Uh, polygamy does connect sex and marriage and parenthood. It, it does it differently than monogamy, but it does connect them and expects them to be a kind of very close relationship between those uh, things. And of course, uh, the Old Testament uh, has some great men, Jacob, Esau, David. Um, obviously had more than one wife. And, uh, and the New Testament doesn't explicitly go after polygamy. I think there's kind of some implicit things, but it's not on the same level as sodomy or adultery and uh, where it's explicitly called out. So, you know, the fact that same-sex marriage came before polygamy is something that I think should surprise us as a real cause of wonder and tells us a lot about the situation um, that we're in and what uh, the forces of the sexual revolution are trying to accomplish. Uh, if they were interested in just kind of expanding the routes to effective parenthood and effective marriage, they would have gone for polygamy first. But the fact that they went after kind of blessing uh, homosexuality, then same-sex marriage, and only later uh, come to consider something like plural marriage shows that they're uh, really about something different. They're about you know, changing the way we view sex and detaching sex entirely from parenthood and enduring relationships. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the beating heart of that revolution. So yeah, there are surprising things about it. Um, and I think that's one of the great causes of wonder. Yeah. The, um, so people are going to, so many Americans are just going to be shocked to hear you say that, right? Because we're, we're in the situation we're in where it's like, well, we were okay with, we were okay with consenting individuals joining themselves in these homosexual unions, but polygamy just sounds crazy. It was in that barbaric uh, Old Testament and, you know, it's not going to land well. I would, so I want to plow the ground more of what you're saying that what, um, what is that craziness? What what is the shock? You mentioned the, a detaching of sex from procreation, and it seems like we probably were we already there ideologically. So it was like this was is why it was inevitable. And could you chart out a little bit? Um, when did we get there ideologically? When did we make this detachment of sex from procreation from parenthood? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been something kind of gradually building over the course, really of modernity in some ways. Uh, but over the last uh, seventy years, it's the it's one of the key elements of our political community, our regime. And uh, and 
You know, I, I don't believe that our laws are neutral. Our laws can never be neutral. They always have some idea. They promote some idea about what a good relationship is supposed to be or what a good life is supposed to be. And our laws over the last 70 years have increasingly been about promoting a particular understanding of what human relationships is. I refer to this only obliquely in the article, um, but that idea is called the pure, I call it the pure relationship. And the pure relationship has as its kind of beating heart, the idea that relationships are entered into for their own sake, so that each person who enters into that relationship gets something out of it. And nothing from outside that relationship can determine the nature of that relationship. So that marriage is no longer something that happens in front of the state or in front of God, but it rather it emerges from the two people who enter into the marriage and then they define the marriage for themselves. And kids are outside the purpose too. They don't have anything to do with the purpose because that would mean that that purpose is not emanating directly from the wills and the, the feelings of the, the individuals. So what has been going on over the last uh, 70 years is we've continually been stripping away the duties that might be enforced uh, on marriage from the outside so that, that these relations, we don't want to call a marriage anymore, these relations form from the wills of the individuals for the purposes of the individuals and as long as the individuals want them to last. So no-fault divorce helps a pure relationship ar uh, arrive because now the only thing that keeps them together is not the law that says you can't part, but rather the wills and the feelings of the people within it. And of course, the idea that Procreation is one of the purposes of marriage, left our law in the late 70s and early 80s. So you were no longer able to say that. That hosed the ground for same-sex marriage. And uh, or and and it and it ultimately hosed the ground for plural marriage, that is more than two people entering into marriage. So um, this ideal of the pure relationship has been guiding the American uh, you know, approach to marriage. Um, you know, as the sexual revolution has been underway. And, uh, and, and really the only, the only legitimate form of marriage um, that is there to oppose it is the Christian idea of marriage, where the form is given, where the number is given pretty much, and where the church, uh, you know, uh, blesses the marriage, where it frowns on divorce, and where God is present at the heart of the marriage. And so these two things, um, the Christian marriage and the pure relationship, is really kind of like the battle for the soul of the country these days. Now, you said something there about, you said procreation only went out in the late 1970s, early 1980s? When, when, uh, in, what are you in the law, in the law, um, it became like you couldn't say that the purpose of marriage was procreation in the law uh, at that point. And that's, those are just kind of a, uh, a series of Supreme Court cases um, that are kind of not even that well known. Things where states had a prohibition on uh, people marrying convicts who were behind bars. And the Supreme Court would throw out those laws and say, no, the purpose of marriage isn't having kids, but rather like having sharing benefits with one another and uh, and you know feeling uh, fulfilled in that relationship. 
And you can do that through letter writing or through a telephone when you go and visit your uh, uh, convict spouse. So it just became difficult in the law to say that. I mean, uh, there are other ways of uh, making the same point. Uh, you can say that, you know, the, the very idea of having kids uh, was under like increasing stress, um, you know, once the contraceptive mentality was uh, blessed. Uh, in the regime generally, because the contraceptive mentality meant that sex wouldn't be connected to procreation and uh, would now be for the enjoyment of the two people having sex alone instead of, you know, for the purposes of that procreation. So there's a lot of ways in which, you know, the, the things that marriage connects is sex, procreation, uh, parenthood, and marriage. Like those things, like that's a system. And the pure relationship takes those four things and just like chops them up and tries to say that they are individual uh, experiences in human life that you can have or not have as you like. You can add them up however you want, or you can have one or two or three or four if you want, or uh, but you can you can also select a la carte from the menu, and uh, and <laughs> you know kind of that's what we're facing like the separation of those things or the joining of those things into institutions. So we can say like, not my president, not my marriage, you know, not my, not my male biology. You can, you, it sounds like uh, we were doomed when we began to buy into this expressive individualism that was rejecting any kind of transcendental, um, order or definition of who we are as persons and we swallowed that hook and that that thing does lead to this polyamory or polygamy that we're now facing yeah i mean i i don't i don't disagree with that formulation i i just like want to emphasize that the formulation that you just gave is a very moral one that is it contains a vision of what society should look like so it's not like freely choosing individuals doing what they would like. It's like encouraging everyone to separate sex, procreation, parenthood, marriage from one another, to imagine their own life, and then to live it in much the same way as everyone else around them by adopting the pure relationship. So that it's kind of like a magnet that draws people in unless there's another magnet that draws people away from that vision. So, um, you know, it, it's one of the, it's one of the difficult things to be, you know, try to be very consistent on matters and I'm trying to be consistent on the matter that our laws are never neutral. They're always promoting some idea of the good, the advantageous and the just. So even though our Supreme court and some of our modern liberals are saying that the state needs to be neutral on these matters. They're really secretly promoting something. And that's, you know, that's what we're up against. You said in the article, same-sex marriage is way more of an affront to civilization than polygamy. Why? Um, well, could you just keep reading? <laughs> I know. That's a quote. That's a quote. I know you said it's... People will go read the article, but you know. <laughs> well, um, I mean, because I tried to explain it right after the quotation. Um, I mean, you know, if we say that family is the cornerstone of, uh, you know, civilizations and societies, 
Uh, that mean, that is uh, about connecting one generation to the next generation. Same-sex marriage like can't do that. So it's re they're really not about promoting an enduring civilization. They're about like living off the fat that we have now and allowing civilization itself to kind of crumble. Uh, most civilizations have some sort of proscription against uh, both, you know, all kinds of gay and lesbian lifestyles and uh, even cross-dressing. Like civilizations try to point men and women or men to fatherhood, women to motherhood, so that they can in some way reproduce the next generation. They proscribe uh, homosexual, you know, acts because uh, if those proliferate, it confuses and makes difficult the jobs of mothers and fathers to actually reproduce and makes fewer mothers and fathers. So a civilization always depends for its existence on procreative sex. There's a number of different ways that you can screw that up. One of them would be by blessing, honoring, um, showing much pride in um, the LBGTQIA life and not supporting motherhood and fatherhood, which are the building blocks of any civilization. So, I mean, the, the Christian teaching really reinforces those building blocks of civilization, and uh, which is why Christendom has you know, existed for 2,000 years. It's very difficult to imagine America's gay global empire lasting 2,000 years if the most blessed form of, of sexual activity and relationship is the pure relationship and the gay pride, you know, like angle on that relationship. So, I mean, that would be my prediction. If you want uh, to come back uh, in a couple hundred years, we'll see what it looks like. But uh, I think it's difficult to build a civilization on that basis. What, what about artificial reproductive technologies? You don't think that's going to be the, the feeding tube for the LGBTQ agenda? Uh, well, they've they've tried that, and I think that's another example of a set of practices that have never been the basis of a civilization. So surrogacy, mass adoption, um, I think I mentioned some other things uh, in, in the article, uh, have never been like the foundational element of any civilization. Now, we may try to build a new one. And uh, and we'll see, you know, if that can work. I mean, it's obvious we are trying to build a new one in some ways. Um, but you know, I'll take the under on it working. Um, and I have other other ways of making that argument, and have made it made it in different ways elsewhere. But you know, that's uh, that's my general view. Oh, that's very interesting to me. So you're bas you're basically saying the whole contract in the womb and all the babies in in freezers and of all the artificial reproductive technologies, while it's certainly a thing and it's going to be a thing, you actually don't think it's going to be so much of a thing that we can build a whole homosexual uh, civilization yeah, because, through that through that means. Because why do people want to be parents? Like, why do you want to invest in being a parent? And notice I'm using a gender neutral word like parent instead of mother and father. Like, Wanting to be a parent itself is something that has to be cultivated uh, in a society, in a tradition. Um, and so, you know, recently I wrote something in First Things in the last issue of First Things on South Korea's amazingly um, like cratering birth rate, uh, which is now under 0.8 total fertility rate. 
Now, they don't have artificial technology, and uh, but they also aren't having kids. Why? No one wants to. So why, if you're going to have a pure relationship, would you artificially produce a child? Now that you have this thing compromising your ability to enjoy all of the fruits of our technological republic. So no matter what, children depend on our willingness to sacrifice for their good and to make them as part of who we are and to people heaven with these children. <laughs> and so you have to have some reason to have them. And I don't see how on the basis of the pure relationship, you're going to have a desire to have children. So like you can do that today, but still surrogacy is a very fringe movement. I mean, it's, there's more than there used to be, but it's a very fringe movement because it presupposes the desire to be a parent, which is not something that we support culturally when we embrace the pure relationship. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So now what you can say, like you should argue back to me now, say, well, maybe the public will make the children and we can use the brave new world model in order to bring children into the world so that no individual has children, but we raise them collectively. We create them through science. I mean, maybe that's the way it, it will have to go. But when you dishonor motherhood and fatherhood, you get less motherhood and fatherhood. That seems to me to be a very good rule of thumb when it comes to understanding how human societies work. I was a great, uh, I was very grateful that in Aristotle's politics, he corrected that little thing about Plato's Republic. <laughs> I was like, I do. Who, oh, why, you know, who wants that? Nobody wants Who wants to wants raise that. children in common? Yeah, I mean, and, but Aristotle's ultimate point there uh, in book two of the politics is that the love of one's own is a source of good things in human life so that you favor your own children over the children of other people, even though your children aren't as good as they are and you favor them because they're your own. And so much good and profitable things happen in the world because we favor our own. And the idea that we're going to like have some sort of objective raising of children where no one considers those children their own is like so far been a fantasy in human life. Okay. So does this mean mm -hmm. that you think this whole 25% approval of polygamy, that polygamy really has a shot because it's, 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 it's masculine. It's going to have natural children. Uh, those who are wealthy are going to have multiple wives. are going to assert their dominance. Um, do you think that this, because I imagine most people are going to look at this and go, Hey, the LGBTQ thing's really a threat, but this polygamy, I mean, maybe in Utah, Scott's from down there in Utah, he's down from that area, whatever <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, you know, it's going to, it's, so it's a thing there with the Mormons, but it's not going to be a real thing in the United in these here United States, but you're tapping into something deeper going, no, no, polygamy actually has some, has some civilizational building power. Do you think it really has a shot? No, uh, because uh, I, I don't think polygamy has much of a shot because the whole infrastructure of the pure relationship is our culture so that any polygamy that forms is going to be not, we'll call it like the stable polygamy of, uh, of Persia, 
um, or the Islamic world, but it'll be the unstable, pure relationship version where people just kind of easily come in and out. Uh, it'll be more like an open marriage than it'll be polygamy. Um, you know, all of these institutions, monogamy, the pure relationship, depend on building a culture to support them. My prediction would be that in our, like, like where the, su the support uh, for plural marriage is higher now than it was in 2000, um, like 2000. So it's about 25% now. It was like 6% 20 years ago. Um, and that, make, that makes the support uh, for um, plural marriage today about what support for same-sex marriage was in the mid-90s. Like, mm. that's where we are. And uh, if it is ever legalized, it'll probably be a minority lifestyle. Almost all of it will be, all of the plural marriage will be polygamy, where it's one woman or one man and many women, polygyny. And, uh, and because, you know, like generally men do not tolerate being cheated on. <laughs> Whereas women, like there have been polygamy, polygamous societies where they can kind of live with it. And they live with it because they have an alpha male and uh, who supports uh, them in so many different ways and, uh, and attracts all of them. So, I mean, so all of history's examples of this, of plural marriage have been polygamy. And um, such that we call polygamy, polygyny, you know, like those things actually end up almost meaning the same thing. Um, polygamy just means one spouse with many people of the other, uh, other sex. And, but it's all, it's always one man and many wives. Like that's the way it, uh, the way it always comes up. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think some of that could arise, uh, when you look at the, at the, uh, New York times articles that are written on modern plural marriage, you'll see that all of them give the example of one man with many highbrow wives. So it's like one guy who's a CEO of a small tech firm who has four wives, some of whom are, were secretaries. One is like a social media person and they'll just do stories about it. And it's always kind of upper middle class, uh, lower upper class people who you know have chosen this lifestyle and they have a snapshot of their life at one particular moment. And uh, that's what I'd expect uh, to be the norm here in egalitarian plural marriage, where we're just kind of all in it, hanging out together and, you know, uh -huh. cooking, yeah. having wine. And yeah, we don't we don't like the patriarchy of the real uh, polygamy system that you were talking about, the 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 harder forms or the stronger forms of it. And so you're basically saying the LGBTQ agenda doesn't have civilizational power. Um this free relationship, I think is what you called it. Maybe a, a pure, pure relationship, pure, pure relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you don't think polygamy. So polygamy, at least traditionally conceived, wouldn't be a pure relationship idea, but you're saying in our context, it's basically going to be a pure relationship kind yeah, of thing. It would have to kind of remake itself to be non-patriarchal fluid, um, right. not involving the production of kids or the preservation of property. Um, no eunuchs. <laughs> I'm just there would be there would be different kinds of eunuchs probably, 
And uh, yeah, it would have to be, it would be a different thing, but it would, it would have, it would mimic the old polygamy in the sense that it would be one man and many women. So do you think um, polyamory? So my question then is, do you think polyamory has a shot? Yeah. Polyamory is what I mean by plural marriage. Um, plural marriage. And, and that just means like one or more people of each sex open it and enter into a non-exclusive sexual relationship with one another. And uh, so by plural marriage, like it doesn't have to necessarily be blessed by the state. It's just a condition where many, many loves come together. That's what polyamory is. And that's what plural, I just equate that with plural marriage. And I'm saying, do you think that, because it sounds, yeah. if polygamy doesn't have a shot because it's just going to be a pure marriage thing. The polyamory thing seems like, does that have a better shot at kind of actually? Well, I think it has all of the same problems. Uh, generally, uh, you know, here I am uh, pontificating on polyamorous relationships. I'm not positive I know all of the data on this stuff. Uh, but knowing human nature and, the, and some of the stats, my guess is that most polyamorous relationships end up being that egalitarian polygamous type relationships. Um, that Will Smith is the exception to the rule on this. Um, you know, it's very <laughs> difficult to find men who will tolerate open relationships. And, uh, and well, when he slapped Chris Rocket, I don't think I think he gave up uh, tolerating <laughs> it. Well, I think he, yeah, he was you know he was kind of called out uh, for being less of a man. Um, uh, and yeah, I don't know I don't know if he's uh, if he's if that practice has stopped in his his relationship, but. Yeah, I mean, so I just my guess is that most polyamorous relationships will end up looking like the egalitarian polygamy that I was describing. Okay, all right, twenty five percent of America now approve of polygamy, and you're talking about um, um, obviously we we need conservatives to stand against this, and this is this is one of the things in your article that really jumped out to me. You, if you take the people that are going to stand against this kind of thing, you said there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. Um, you basically said um, that we should not respect the legal framework of neutrality. Now, um, so my question is, first, let's start with what is that legal framework of neutrality? Let's go ahead and define what that is and then talk about why we shouldn't try to argue according to it. Yeah, I call the legal framework of neutrality the liberal ringer. And uh, what that means is that in order to restrict access to a right, you have to demonstrate that there is a compelling state interest in the restriction and that you are enforcing that restriction in the most, in the least oppressive or least, uh, in most narrowly tailored way. That's what you're looking for. So for instance, uh, you know, Justice Scalia once argued during an oral argument, I guess I could say that there's a right to murder other people, but we have a compelling state interest to limit your right to murder people. And we have narrowly tailored the focus by, make, by prohibiting first degree murder and punishing people for that. So there you go. Like that's murder survives the liberal ringer. <laughs> and, but one of the things that conservatives need to know is that over the last 60, 70 years, none of our attempts to maintain the form of marriage have survived the liberal ringer. If you want to limit pornography, sorry, 
You can't demonstrate there's a compelling state interest to do so. And if you do, you're never doing it in a narrowly tailored way. If you want to say that there's a compelling state interest to limit marriage to man and a woman, you can try to make an argument, but we'll never believe you. And, uh, and if we did believe you, we would demonstrate that you're not doing it in a narrowly tailored way. And they've already, you know, basically uh, signaled that if, they, if conservatives try to limit marriage to one man and another man or to two people, that it's not going to survive the, um, the liberal ringer. Now, like, I'm just going to give you something here um, on that. So this is what it means. Conservatives could argue, and you kind of implied this before, that polygamy in Islamic countries is patriarchal, it's illiberal, and it's abusive. But then the liberals will just say, but that's not going to be the polygamy we practice. If you take polygamy into America, we will get a healthier, more egalitarian polygamy based on consent. So we have to allow it. Our plural marriages will be virtually indistinguishable from monogamous marriages. And then, oh, so the liberal ringer, like, there you go. That's how it works. Here's another example. Polygamists today in Southern Utah or Northern Arizona tend to be insular. They tend to be abusive. They're inclined toward underage arranged marriages. But this is not the way plural marriage will be if we bring it into the light of day. And uh, we should just punish those abuses. We should punish underage sex, but we should allow polygamy to, uh, you know, to be legal. That, that way it'll be a narrowly tailored law. So, so the ringer, you can never survive the liberal ringer. And when you try to survive the liberal ringer, you lose. So let's just acknowledge that and say that uh, what I what I like to say in, uh, is that we should have losses worth having. <laughs> uh, we're going to lose, so let's lose with dignity, class, and with the proper <laughs> argument, and uh, so that we're not teaching our side the wrong thing. Like society depends on enduring man woman marriages to produce children. Without that, there is no way to keep it together. Repeat every time you get a question and say something like that. And the judges will say, well, that means that polygamy, you know, uh, isn't uh, in our compelling, not, not justified by a compelling state interest. And there's no narrowly tailored. They're still going to write that opinion. But at least you are saying the truth uh, about what, it, like, we don't oppose polygamy because it's a, merit and arranged marriages. We oppose it because civilization, our Christian civilization as it comes to us, depends on men and women marrying, having children, raising them to be responsible citizens, adults, and believers. Like, boom, that's the bottom line. <laughs> Christian We're going to lose. We're going to lose. Hey. Well, let's lose with class and dignity. Hey, now you're talking to like a post-millennial ethos uh, organization over here with Canon Press or in Moscow. You're talking about Christendom. You can't be talking about all we're going to lose. We're not. Oh, we're going to lose in the courts. We're just going to lose in the courts. That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at. We believe in revival around here. We're not. We're not. We're not uh, at the Alamo. 
Well, yeah, maybe we are. <laughs> well, so, if you'd like to come back in 10 years, um, I mean, you can put this on your calendar. We'll see if plural marriage is legal. <laughs> well, I did wonder as you were you were rolling out how you could try to attack that and not fall into the liberal ringer. You know, I mean, boy, it just said, well, you know, I mean, polygamy would. I'm all for a man sleeping with like seven women all at the same time, as long as he's nice to them and doesn't abuse them. I imagine there's going to have to be a still a, a feminist somewhere that is going to not be a fan of that kind of rationale. Uh, possibly. What you got to do is just like suck them back into that strong uh, polygamy. Don't let it, you know, if you just kind of keep bringing them back to that, that strict hard islamic type of um of polygamy then i'm 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 not like i would just say that you know generally uh, that leads to the pure relation that they'll be utterly consistent on that. If the ultimate reality is old polygamy, my guess is they will try to dismantle it. Like I, I believe that. And, uh, and so like, uh, I don't know what civilization will look like that you're just, you're describing. It's one possible human future. Um, but, uh, I just say it's one possible human future. Okay. Now you, you, um, you already answered this question, but you were preaching a sermon. You were going like full Martin Luther. So I want you to slow it down, which I liked. I was a big fan of it. If we preach like that, we're not going to lose, Scott. Now, if now, but I want to ask you the question and have you just kind of reiterate it because you said, look, you can't basically you can't argue against this neutral legal uh, with this uh, neutral legal framework from this vantage point. You can't just try to say that polygamy is going to be abusive or it's bad for women. You can't actually argue according to their playbook because they're, they're going to get slippery and they're going to find a way to still accept polygamy. And you say in the article, uh, we're going to lose, let's lose making the right arguments. We should, and we should simply make the real arguments against polygamy and plural marriage and win or lose with them. You, that's how you describe it. Make the real argument. Stop playing around and saying, well, I'm going to adopt the liberal zeitgeist and then argue according to their playbook, But it's uh, which I couldn't agree with you more. But I just, I think, the reason I'm asking this question is because people that are listening to this, so many, so many evangelicals may not even know that they actually think according to the liberal playbook. So I, I, want, I want you to articulate just how radical your approach is. You're saying, no, you went and argued about the existence of this here Christian civilization that's come down to us. You're talking about actually arguing um, with the real arguments. Spell out again what those real arguments are. Yeah. So, um, so let's think of it like this, that, that Christian or any argument for a conservative social policy meets the legal culture we have. And the legal culture very much shapes how Christian lawyers like defend conservative policies. And it has to, because they're forced into the courts to 
make particular arguments. And, you know, you might have been able to believe that this was all kind of a fair-minded way of evaluating morals legislation for the, you know, like maybe in 1950, you could have believed that. But there's no way to believe that now. So the the venue into which we are forced to argue is a, a stacked deck against us. And, you know, I mean, I was part of the, you know, the, the, a group of scholars who argued against same-sex marriage. And, you know, I remember distinctly in various moments where the lawyers who were going to be arguing things in front of the Ninth Circuit or other circuits just looked at me and said, Scott, I believe that we can demonstrate that man-woman marriage has a compelling state interest. And we can narrowly tailor uh, the institution of marriage to achieve that state interest. And I, you know, I, I said, oh, I mean, good for you. Good luck. <laughs> but I, I was, you know, very dubious of that, of being able to do that. And, uh, and like one of the lessons I think that you have to take from the same-sex marriage debate is that you can't simply argue on behalf of man-woman marriage you have to say that there is something fundamentally inherently defective about same-sex sex. That is the sex that the other institution is based on. Like it's bad, wrong for civilization, it's disgust, you know, whatever you want to say. But, you know, like without stigmatizing or arguing against the fundamental reality of the thing that you're arguing against, you can't really defend the thing you want to defend. And, you know, polygamy, like, isn't as bad as same-sex marriage. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, like, when you look at uh, arguments against it, you know, it's like a lot of infighting, a lot of jealousy, very patriarchal, kind of leads to a tyrannical political culture. Um, those are the, like, secondary arguments or the things that you'll say in court. But really, you want to say that civilization depends on man-woman marriage, producing children and raising them to honorable adulthood. Um, polygamy, like, might be able to do that under some circumstances. And, uh, and, but I just think you have to hammer home the, the fundamental reality that civilization depends on men and women, a man and a woman marrying, having children raising them to honorable adulthood. And, uh, and so that's the thing you have to be willing to say and have to be willing, like what Martin Luther used to do, I uh, guess, uh, is uh, he'd have a table and a tablecloth. And before he'd go in and have a debate, he would write on the table what the fundamental point is. So you always return to that fundamental point so that when he was arguing against the Calvinist, I'm Lutheran, I know what, you know, like, I know you're canon press. Um, and when they were talking about um, the Lord's Supper, he put on the table, you know, this is my body. <laughs> and um, that's the fundamental thing. And like the fundamental thing on marriage is civilization depends on men and women having children and raising them to honorable adulthood. No civilization can exist without that cent central thing happening. And if men and women get together but don't have children and they do in enough numbers, civilization's gonna shrink and wither. 
um, if you honor different kinds of sex, civilization is going to shrink and wither. And, uh, and like, that's the thing I would write on the table and say, I would never leave that point. And you have to be willing to, to say that and defend it. So it, Christians are going to be tempted by the legal argument to be saying things like, well, patriarchal relationships are inherently abusive. That's not why we oppose them. Like we oppose them because civilization ultimately depends, our civilization ultimately depends on this fundamental reality. Amen. Is that a, Scott, was that clear enough? Was that what you're getting at? Yeah, it's it's great. It's fantastic. And we have to do this again sometime. This this has been really, really good. If folks want to um to read more of your stuff, uh, where do they go? Um, you know, I post everything I write on Twitter, on my Twitter at Scott Yenner. Um, but I am not active on Twitter. I have been told that I have the soul for Twitter, that I could like I can put things in a punchy way. I can insult people very quickly, um, and which is precisely why I don't do it. <laughs> and, um, and but I do post everything I write and all the podcasts I do on my Twitter account. So uh, I guess that would be a place to look. Okay, very good. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Scott. It's been great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that the American family is in bad shape. But we're left with the question: Why? Why is the American family dissolving? I believe that there is a covenant solution to the dissolving American family. So I sat down with Pastor Doug Wilson, Pastor Toby Sumter, and several other of my friends to talk about covenant marriage, covenant parenting, even the covenant and the cosmos. It's called The Case for the Christian Family, and it's available March 31st. I hope you enjoy it.